Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Race, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're talking about Season 4, Episode 16, Bar Association. Teleplay by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, and directed by LeVar Burton. Bar Association aired on February 19th, 1996. This week on Deep Space Nine, Quark's employees, led by Rom, form a union against Quark's unfair labor practices and promptly go on strike. This has been one of the episodes that I've been most excited to cover since Elise and I started covering the show, and they and I really wanted to do something special for Bar Association. So we are so glad this week to be joined by Holly Von Sin, a burlesque performer, costume maker, stripper, and most importantly, a huge Star Trek nerd. So Holly, welcome so Yay. much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we like to start when we bring on a new guest every time to ask them how they got into Star Trek and Deep Space Nine specifically. Um, yeah, hi, thank you for having me. Uh, I got into Star Trek as a family exercise. Um, my father is a massive sci-fi nerd from the 60s. You know, I grew up um, with, you know, old issues of heavy metal and old pulp novels uh, all over my house. So uh, when T and or yeah, when TNG, the next generation came on the air, uh, we would sit at our TV trays because it was the 90s yes. and we would eat dinner and watch new episodes. Um, you know, Tasha Yar was definitely uh, part of a sexual awakening that happened <laughs> at a very young age. Um, and so DS9, obviously, the next series, handing over the keys. Um, I truthfully didn't really get into DS9 at the time it first aired. I think I was just a little too young, but my brother, who's five years older, was super into it because he was also you know, a boy in the nineties and was very much into like war and, yeah. you know, stuff like that yeah. and politics. Dad, and dad so stuff. it appealed to him. I like to call it dad. Yeah. Dad stuff. Yeah. Dad stuff. And I was into it too. And so, yeah, I, it has over the years though, become my favorite series of Star Trek. Yay. I think DS9 is the best Trek. Um, I mean, I got a lot of strong feelings about Strange New Worlds as well being pretty amazing so far, but DS9 seems to just like really hit it on all angles in all directions. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love Strange New Worlds as well. I love I love all of oh, Trek, so good. really, but yeah, it's great. Mm. I'm so happy to have I think you yeah. here with us. Oh, go ahead, Elise. Sorry. No, I've been I've been talking Elise's ear off about the prospect of you coming on, Holly. And then when you said yes, I've been like so so giddy, and I was so excited before you you moved that I got to see one of your your Star Trek numbers because that had been on my like local Edmonton oh my bucket God, list, and just the timing wonderful. hadn't worked out. And then when we were at Arcadia that one night before you moved, it was like my life was complete. So I'm <laughs> so glad that so sweet you that. agreed to come on. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that we got to chat and just nerd out because, I mean, I'm somebody who has a very poorly done Star Trek tattoo and we'll talk people's ear offs about it. Before, so now I get that chance. Before we move on, what is your Star Trek tattoo of, if you don't mind sharing? It's it's just the the insignia okay. for um, TNG, but it was, the story behind it is just so dumb and stupid. Um, I mean, you, know, you don't have to get into getting, it if you don't want to. 
Oh, it's very silly. I'll give the Coles notes. Uh, I was on tour with a band and our whole thing was, it was just a bunch of nerds in a van on tour across Canada and me and two of my bandmates uh, just always talked about Star Trek and uh, we went to Ottawa and we're like, let's get matching tour tattoos. <laughs> and we went and it was uh, this human's house, which should have been the first clue that it was bad. Um, and then there was a... Uh, variety of teak and uh fish tanks which if you know what that's code for uh i was like oh no and me and my bandmate were like okay we're not let's just go in and say hi we're not going to do this because it was in somebody's basement and our other bandmate had already gotten there oh, and started no. getting tattooed and we're just like i guess we're can't leave a man behind like kobayashi maru there's no there's no <laughs> there's win no situation <laughs> yeah um yeah, i love that and this the person who tattooed us just listened to tool and smoked weed um, yeah. and <laughs> the entire time and uh it's just really badly done um and my other friend who got tattooed his wound up getting awfully infected oh, and no. was, um we can all look back and laugh now but at the time it was very i mean i think we were laughing at the time too <laughs> yeah it's just bad don't uh don't get sketchy tattoos kids i'm glad uh, that no one died don't. of infection <laughs> yeah no and then we all got to go um you know do some harm reduction sti checks as a family i appreciate that we're all like we should all uh get screened for bloodborne illnesses yes. together i think that was Real a really experience. that was a really good call yeah. on your part you never know I mean, that's why community and found family is like so important. Right? <laughs> is it's like you, did, you were never alone; you could do it all together. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's the story. Uh, I kind of love that story. Thank you for sharing it with us. No problem. <laughs> all right, so we'll yeah. kind of dive into our discussion here. What Holly, what Elise, and I like to do, kind of before we dive into the the meat of the episode, is kind of start with our uh, initial thoughts and you know, kind of some some fun facts that we may have found online. But as always, my first question is: Elise, did you or did you not remember this episode? Yes, I remember this episode. Um, how can you not remember this episode, Holly? I don't. I have. You know, you haven't been here before, but. I've only seen Deep Space Nine once before this. Um, so this is only my second time watching it, even though it is my favorite. So half the time I'm like, yeah, I didn't remember that episode from before. But this one, yes. I'm always going to remember a, uh, an, a, a an episode where Rom gets to be like center stage and be like, there's so many good memes from this episode. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's a very memed episode. Yeah. It's very... I mean, it's burned in my soul as well, but I've also watched DS9 like a thousand times. So. Right. Well, and like it is, and we'll like, you know, it'll come out. And this is for all of our best laid plans. What happens is we're going to break the discussion this way and then something comes up and we talk about it now, which is, you know, cool and fine. But I think the memed version of this episode in people's heads is a little bit different than what the episode was on like a rewatch in terms of its perspective and the ways in which, you know, especially like the online memeiness of it thinks this episode is saying slightly different things than it, than it actually is. Like I really felt the nineties of it all in this episode and its view of, of unions and organizing and things like that. And the fact that 
the union just disbands at the end because they think won one negotiation yeah. and that's great. Now we can move on. It was like, yeah, it was just kind of interesting. I don't know what your both your perspectives were on that kind of rewatching it, but that's just what really kind of stuck out to me. But O'Brien was as I remember. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think about the fact that they disbanded at the end. Um, obviously, when you form a union, I, you know, you, you stay. <laughs> the union continues after your first fight, hopefully. Yeah, it was definitely also like, we built a union. We don't know what it is or how to do it, but we did it. It's like, that's that's not how you build unions. No. Um, yeah, I did the the fact that it just kind of, okay, we can't do the union, um, but we'll do it under the table kind of thing does fit um, within the world building of sort of the Ferengis mm. and obviously um, without spoiling what is to come in DS9, but like where... Ferengi culture and those like Rom and Quark and Lita and particularly mm-hmm. particular where those characters wind up going. Yeah. Um, but I definitely see the um, Rick Bergman uh, Bergman? Bergman? Berman. Berman. Yeah. Fuck Rick, Rick Berman. Berman. Sorry, we have to say fuck, fuck him. him. Yeah. I, could, I could do a whole podcast about how fuck Rick Bergman. Um, but like how he was yeah. <laughs> You should just call him Rick Bergman because we don't need to know his real name. Bergman, yeah. Uh, Berman. Uh, Rick. Ricky. Um, that man Rick. How Ricky, that man Rick, how he really, really didn't want serialized episodes on DS9 was like a big thing for him. And he would get mad at Stephen I. Robert, who, you know, went on to do all the Dominion War stuff. But he was so against serialized episodes, which now is just TV. It's prestige TV. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you've talked about DS9 being sort of a progenitor of that. Yes, we have. Um, but yes, you definitely feel it in this one where it's like, oh, we got to we got to bottle it up. We got to yeah. we got to put the potted plants back in their pots. We got to yeah. put everything back, put all the furniture back where it goes for the next episode. Yeah, I you feel know? like the only thing that sticks at the end is that Rom gets a different job at the end, which is, I thought was a great choice um, for him. Not to work for his brother, but other yeah. than that, everything else is oh, and and Worf moving to the um defiant and War- Worf moving. I mean, Worf sucks. He keeps sucking. Ugh. He continues to suck I... until Picard. Yeah, DS Nine Worf is so. I love Worf. Yeah. Like Worf's my favorite, but I know he sucks. So like, my heart is a little broken right now, but I'll I'll manage. <clears throat> I just. I think he's just so reliable for me. <laughs> I like I loved him on TNG. Oh yeah, he's great I think I was just TNG. younger, but yeah. But even looking back, I'm like, okay, uh, okay, trad wife war. <laughs> like he yeah. definitely is. Like, like I feel like less. Um, he's less like he's way more grumpy right now than I remembered, and then he is on TNG. Because, like, I'm watching T- TNG... I'm re-watching TNG simultaneously, so I, I said this, like, last week. I, I I keep getting so confused because whenever there's a TNG, like, um, Klingon episode, and then we get a Deep Space Nine Klingon episode, I'm like... I get whiplash, and I'm like, wait, are we friends with Gowron right now? I don't remember. And so... But, like, he's just being... He is being Gowron real. has no friends. <laughs> That's true. Um... <laughs> He's like Worf is pretty meh right now. I would agree, except for his interactions with Dax. But but that's just because Dax is so charming. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think the difference is TNG Worf is a little bit to me like Quark, where he says and acts one thing, like especially like you know Holly, you brought up the whole like trad wife thing, um, but obviously his actions betray air quotes his desire for something different but like something that elise and i have have talked about um as we kind of navigate the thorniness and like problematic tropiness of the ferengi is kind of them being that or intended to be that kind of commentary on 20th century humans and specifically with quark it's all performative masculinity right in terms of i have to act this way or trying to intentionally act this way when it's like no quark inside is actually like a little bit different but isn't allowed or doesn't feel allowed or you know is doesn't feel expected or doesn't see a pathway to success early on to kind of be who he wants to be it's all this performativeness and i think Worf and tng has a little bit of that and they play him more as like the straight man because again like yeah he tries to trad wife kalar but he's obviously interested in kalar so it's like not what he's looking for obviously he's has this relationship with you know dax now and everything else but tng wharf i don't think it has some of that that sort of nuance it's just grumpy stick in the mud cop <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah a cab my my <laughs> ds9 and a cab i could talk about that for like oh yeah ever. especially i mean like i would go on about odo forever about that but I mean, I love Rene Aubergenois. Uh, oh, yeah. Rest in peace, sweet king. Um, love him in every, like, I'm a big fan of, like, slow cinema, and he shows up a yeah. lot in those kind of movies. Yeah. Um, love him. But DS9, really, like, I made this in the notes, and I might as well bring it up here, is like, and I've said it before, like, DS9 says A cab with his whole chest. Like, the whole series, and as the series progresses, is really just like, really living in this murky moral gray area but also at the end of the day is like odo's not a good guy Worf is not no. a good guy the no. founders are not good guys all these sort of quote-unquote law and order figures like even ducat like the yeah. good guys in oh like in you know in the pale moonlight that episode and um the episode where um they cisco is like back in the 50s or the 40s and he's a sci-fi writer like those ones like those ones have police brutality and race relations like ds9 was very leftist in its politics and very much mm -hmm. and you see it i think you see it through these sort of police figures like odo and Worf that like they're they're buffoons we've already yeah we've they're gallant and goofus we've covered the episode with the bell riots already um and it's it's like people in ten, like there's basically tent cities and i'm like that is very much like what is going on now and it's just very um mm-hmm. which is i think that was supposed to be next year or something like that next year yeah it's it's like, next year um yeah. yeah and it's just it was so alarming to rewatch that and be like oh that's like next year or i we might have watched it at the end of last year but like still it's just they're very well and if yeah. honestly if you look what's happening like it's not actually that far exactly. off exactly i mean we don't yeah. have brenner information services which is a big disappointment to me but um <laughs> you know i know i recently said to, <laughs> We've got- to my friend i feel like we're like a minute away from fucking minority report honestly which is a movie i i love but like it's just but 
biometric. But yeah, we do have a Chris Brenner, a whole bunch of Chris Brenners with, uh, you know, problematic 90s era tribal tattoos. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, lo- I like I love Chris Brenner, but he he does have big Elon vibes. Like totally. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna leave those jokes on the table. There, just yeah. Back um, away from that. One thing that I find really interesting, um, just is this a very Star Trek thing in general because humans are not supposed to have conflict with each other. Um, in like I guess part of the Roddenberry box, and um, we have to teach. They have to, like, show these kinds of um, issues with alien species. So we obviously have a labor union episode. They can't do this with humans because Starfleet has so much oversight. Like, if there was a bad employer, they'd probably find out about it. Um, uh, Captain Jellico. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Like, so they obviously have to do this with the Ferengi and the Ferengi's feelings on profit and their capitalistic society is a perfect um, example for this. So I, I, it just, it all just makes sense to me that, the, that this episode would have gotten made. Well, and at least you did, ha- you added it to the notes here yes. in some of the, like your research initially um, about the original like story by credit and the pitching of the story and kind of what the Ira and the writer's room decided to like do with it and kind of the, the kernel the genesis if you will of the of the idea of our association so can you oh yeah you so basically this was originally going to be a b plot for another episode like either rejoined or crossfire i'm trying to remember what, i know we covered crossfire already but i don't remember what happened and obviously rejoined is the one where we have dax's old host duran yeah that was the one with the um the ex right the ex-girlfriend or the ex-wife of the previous of one of the previous hosts oh right 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 yep we got our we got our we got our gay kiss on that one oh my god if you hadn't reviewed that i would have been like please i could talk about that episode for seven days and seven nights seven days crossfires the odo incel episode oh odo is such an incel he really is Um, so it's I'm glad they realized that this was like too big of a story and that it should not be relegated to a B plot. But I do think the B plot in this, this episode is like a nothing burger of a plot like Worf moves, blah, blah, blah. That could have just been like a but sentence. Hey, <laughs> Worf moves, but not after not before getting his ass kicked <laughs> yes. by O'Brien for, for crossing. Yes, the picket line. which is pretty. Yeah. Funny. Which also, like, just reaffirmed something that TNG taught us, which is Worf is not good at fighting. <laughs> For this mighty Klingon warrior, he gets his ass kicked a lot yeah. by a lot of people and species he shouldn't. <laughs> I'm going to tack like. on to something you said earlier, Holly. Like, he's good in Picard, and I think that he was a good fighter in Picard, and that might have been, like, you know, the time that he was good. Like I love Daddy, I, I love Daddy Worf in Picard. Yeah, Daddy, and I, I honestly like totally sidebar on this, but like <laughs> Picard, that last third season, not just like yes. redeeming the second season, oh, yeah. but also redeeming a lot of the character arcs that TNG got wrong because of the time. Yes, like yeah. Levar Burton, you know, Jordy being this kind of 
proto incel yes. character, desexualized yes, character. Yes, they always made and then it back and him he's sound a like a family creep. man. Yeah. yeah, they made him a creep, and yeah. like Lavar Burton did not play Jordy as a creep. And I don't think I don't believe that Jordy would have been a creep. So I'm glad that they fixed well, that too. And he, yeah, and he's he's spoken about. Um, how they desexualized his character because they didn't want to have a sexualized black man. Yeah, that that um, sounds that so tracks with that era. And actually, it, it he's spoken about how he was really uncomfortable about how his character was written. Yeah, that makes so, sense. I I, can, I haven't I mean, read that, but I believe it. Yeah, and so I feel. I mean, I could be wrong. I could be making that up. I do have a terrible memory, but I feel <laughs> like I saw that. Somewhere. Um, but yeah, I feel like. Worf was also like they listened to the internet for the last you know since yeah. the internet existed and been like oh people really don't like Worf you know he's the worst father he's the worst he's a terrible family member he doesn't I do not want to be know a member that of the he, house of Mo he doesn't even know that he has a family like half the time yeah well so yeah, the like, episode we covered last week was the one where Kern comes back because oh the Klingon war is yeah. up again or whatever. And they like Wipe his without memory. Warren's consent, they change like they erase his memories or whatever. In the end, you're supposed to feel bad for Warf because Warf's like, I have no family. I'm like, don't you have a son that you pawned off with your adopted parents? <laughs> your adopted parents and your adopted brother who decided to live on a primitive world um that he can have no contact with. Um, so he just abandoned his brother. Uh, he abandoned his son. He abandoned his boy uh, with his uh, Eastern European family. And then Kern, my thing that bugs me is like two or three episodes later, he joins the house of like Martok and gets his honor back. Like, yeah. so what do you do about Cor- Kern then? Like, yeah, what? I do think um, I I mean, I still love Worf. I, I always will. Um, I think I just love him because you always expect him to be stupid and he comes through. Um, but I, I, you mentioned his adoptive parents being Eastern European, and I always say that Worf is my favorite Jewish person in um, Star Trek because his adopted parents are so coded as Jewish to me, and I'm like, he's one of us, which is very funny. It definitely feels that I, that's interesting because I always, as somebody who has like Irish and Polish lineage, he very much codes as like his parents code as like my Polish grandmother. Oh, yeah. That's and we're not Jewish. So it's, yeah. Um, but I think yeah, it could be either great. or. His parents are fantastic. I yeah. Know, I love them. I can see Worf being Jewish. He I does convince a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is kind of a whiner. He in is. a delightful way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we we are. <laughs> I'm laughing because that's... I'm like, as I said that, <laughs> this is an editor note. Um, if that sounds anti-Semitic, please edit that. As the <laughs> as the Jewish person on the podcast, I'm gonna say you're that, good at least laugh. Yeah, like at least it's, Jewish, it's so fine, fine, and it also it made me laugh, and also I'm also a whiner, so it's fine. <laughs> um, you know that hand meme of like a hand, the two fists is like. Yes. whining f- as a hobby it should be like the irish and jewish oh people my because God. yes I as love an that. irish person i whine so fucking much <laughs> and we do as Elise a people is also an aries so there's there's multiple i have a lot of levels <laughs> um speaking of wharf yeah. one of the things i was wondering watching this episode to bring it back to this and how grumpy he is and how just a stick in the mud he is um i was wondering what wharf's uh, astrological sign was and i looked it up and again no idea how true this is because i went to the internet yes. um but i believe in the power of the nerds who are even nerdier than me um apparently wharf is an aries which makes a lot of sense okay so i'm 
So it's interesting because I it depends. Like I'm also on um, beta, memory beta, which is like the non-canon Ooh. version, and they're saying May twenty third, which I can't remember. Makes him a Gemini, I think. I think so. May tw- he's a cusp. He's on the cusp of. Yeah, that's Gemini. Gemini Cancer. No, I think cancer. No, it wouldn't later. be cancer. Oh, no, because cancer's yeah, Gemini. Yeah. <clears throat> He's on the cusp of being um, a Gemini so, and a Taurus. So I, I can see the I can see the Gemini too, only because Worf is like of two worlds, and he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Like he has the Klingon world, and he has the human world, and it's just he is deeply emotional. I can also see him as a Taurus, which um, as a Capricorn who's an Earth sign, um, him being so stubborn and judgmental. <laughs> um, um welcome to my new podcast uh astrology of your favorite star trek characters. um well so this is funny because one thing that matt and i talk about a lot is that we think rom is an aries like we don't know when his birthday is but like i think rom we like i can tell- i think he's a cancer i couldn't tell i can see that too. i can't tell if matt was saying that because he was like he's like you or if he was just making fun of rom like i I don't know in that one episode where (laughs) i was under the influence of some mind enhancing substances and whatever episode it was he was being very much like you so that's why i texted it to you so it wasn't shade it wasn't a compliment it was like somewhere yeah (laughs) yeah i appreciate it i see rom i see rom as a cancer because like my partner is a cancer um and cancers are very like emotional and tender yes. and um tend to take on those sort of femme quote like quote unquote femme coded traits, like very maternal traits. And Ram is very maternal oh, and totally. very soft and thinks with his feelings. And I think, yeah, I would say a cancer. Ooh. Um we'll have to figure this out. No, I'm we'll I think to- I'm in agreement with you because I have a very good friend that's cancer that might be listening to this. Hi, Jack um and i feel very much like yeah yes yeah i think okay i, I think i'm with you i feel like we're wildly off topic i'm so That's sorry okay. y'all. Uh, no 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 this is this is how this is this is great there have been episodes where elise and i only record for like half an hour and about 15 of it is talking the episode and i definitely like, have like gone on like 10 minute taylor swift tangent so like it doesn't matter we're all good. i was gonna say as a capricorn there's part of me that's like we need to get back on track yes that's very yes <laughs> that is very I mean, I, I'm a Virgo rising, so I, I feel you there. Ooh, yeah. Um, no, I'm chaos. I'm a Leo Sun, Virgo rising, Aries Moon. It's fun being Ooh, me. I am a Capricorn, Sag rising, and a Virgo moon. I am Aries Sun, Pisces Moon, and <clears throat> Cancer rising. <laughs> it's a, a ball oh, of emotion. Soft ink. Yes. Just balls of angry emotions. Yes. <laughs> but very different angry emotions yes. than my ball of angry yes. emotion. Yes. There's a lot going on over here. Yeah. Yeah. I learned I at one it. point in our friendship just to like listen to Elise when they're they're going through it sometimes because you know, yeah, just give the space. Don't have to respond to like, you know, show you're like listening even though I am, but just give Elise the space and then if they want to talk about it after, we can talk about it after. There's been yeah. there's been times yeah, where like definitely. I've unloaded and Matt's like, Can can I talk? Am am I allowed to reply? <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm like sometimes I'm like, no. Uh me and my partner have something because they are a delightful cancer and I'm uh very spicy Capricorn. And I'll be ranting and raving. And the the new thing in our house is, do you want solutions or do you just 
yeah. want to rant. I'm like, yeah. I'm obviously, I just want to rant. I think those yeah. are valid questions and good communication skills, honestly. So, yeah. Good job. Yeah. So turning turn, turning into the uh, kind of bulk of the episode, and I think what I want to touch on is is ultimately the the union stuff, which is really kind of interesting because um, Elise, you found this in doing kind of some of your your research around Memory Alpha and the Deep Space Nine companion, is that at the time of this episode, Armin Shimmerman was on the board of directors for SAG or the Screen Actors Guild, yep. um, and is as was very passionate about labor related disputes, and this is a quote at least that you found from from Armin. Quote, people think this is a comic episode, and it is, of course, but in truth, it's really about union management problems. The irony of it is that I play management in this episode, so I thought to to make Rom have a reasonably hard job as a union organizer, I would have to be tough about it to show the struggle to the audience. Although you don't see it on TV very often, this is something that goes on in America all the time. I love Armin. Armin's great. I love Armin him. Rose. He also said that he just really liked he liked this episode a lot. Shout out. Which is not surprising. It's a great episode, great. yeah. We, we've talked before about how like Armin would get frustrated at people just, you know, viewing the Frankie episodes as like comedic, but they're actually being a lot of like pathos and, and interesting things to say in that. And I, just think I think like, that oh, they wait. have a lot, like the Ferengi episodes say a lot more about humans than a lot of the other episodes yeah. for sure. And I, I think they always have, I mean uh, not to dig into the like anti-Semitic coding that a lot of Ferengi no. episodes in TNG particularly had, but right. I think in DS9, they're handed so much better as this yes. sort of talisman yeah. of modern capitalism at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also what you say where they're like pathos as, as a clown, as a, as a clown, a train clown. Um, I see the Frankie episodes as buffoonery. Yes. Um, yeah. And I see them as these sort of um, stock characters. And it's that like, it is through the truce of the clown, like the jester can make fun of the king. Um, and I feel like that's what the Ferengi episodes are, is that they're funny, but they are often the most cutting of um, topics and deal with like some of the more serious topics in uh, their world and ours through that sort of buffoonery, which I love. Yeah, we love to I love the it. Ferengis. Me too. I love them also. They're one of my faves. Yeah. I'm big, someone big that fan. would definitely fuck Cork, so... Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I would fuck Quark. Yeah, not like Quark's regularly, it? maybe, but at least once. I mean, if if Grilka's there for yeah. sure, a hundred percent down. <laughs> yes, because Grilka's a fucking stone cold. Oh no! Fuck. Oh, sorry. I, can I swear? We've been saying fuck yes, the whole yes, time. Please, yeah. please do. Okay, I just noticed it was like, um, Grilka's a oh, no, fucking. Yes. Oof. babe a yeah. badass i love her that's also one of my favorite episodes that also deals with mm-hmm. like really serious topics deep yeah. down of like inheritance yes, yes, and yes, yes. culture and the enfranchisement of women and doesn't she come back um, i don't think we've seen her back yet she does she, she comes does. back yeah uh Stoody-ish. oh just you wait for that episode <laughs> i remember it vaguely but i don't remember it super well it's uh it's 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 all good. I won't spoil it. <laughs> I appreciate that. One of the things that Elise and I were tracking early on in season one specifically, and I think that 
somewhat the show goes away from it as it gets more established but was the idea of deep space nine being kind of that that western frontier town right and that being kind of the archetypes especially early on season one when they weren't bringing in someone from tng to try and get viewers to the new show like the jura sisters um being that being the basis and quark of quarks within that kind of framework of the western frontier in town was definitely the saloon um you had the bar you had gambling you had the hollow suites being allusions to the idea of the bars the card games and then you know the upstairs brothel which i you know as a child thought were just can can girls because of how they were coded turns out no there was brothels i've now seen deadwood because i'm an adult <laughs> um and we've chatted before um about dabo girls in the context of Deep Space Nine, being a bit of Schrodinger sex workers, where the show alludes to that, it alludes to, you know, the sexual elements of the Hall of Suites as well, but it never makes it text. We, at least I think you and I last talked about this specifically when it came to that episode where Jake started dating Marta, who was a, a Davo yes. girl, and some of the responses from, from everyone on the show around that. Um, as we kind of get into the more the organization and the idea of Rom forming the union and organizing, you know, the workers from the waiters to the bartenders to, you know, um, Lita and the Dabble girls and things like that. I wanted to talk to you both about the idea of, you know, the way the show approaches the Dabble girls, the idea of shortening her sex workers, and then how we feel about that and the idea of, you know, organizing one, two, organizing within that kind of, you know, nightclub, bar, saloon context, and the relationship between how the show perceives the staff in this episode, how the show perceives the staff of Quarks, particularly the Dabo girls, a little bit more more broadly, and kind of just curious to hear your your thoughts about there. And we'll we'll start with Holly if that's all right. Yeah, um, I mean it's very interesting because we when we went to talk about this episode, we discussed this, and I had never clocked the Dabo girls as sex workers as as a sex worker as a stripper as somebody who uh is engaged in erotic labor and sex work um and has been for I mean the past 15 years of my life um but I do see it um I find it very interesting the Dabo girls as like a thing I think I think they go into the uh uh Ricky 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 the dick um (laughs) And his just, his just, you know, horrible uh, misogyny and his love of just putting, you know, models with big fake tits all over Star Trek as much as he possibly can. Um, And so I saw, I always kind of viewed them, like when I was younger, I didn't think about them much except for like, oh my God, they're hot and I want their outfits, which like definitely the clues of who I am now were definitely there. (laughs) Um, But I... As an adult, I always coded them as just like artifacts of a creator's misogyny. Um, but yeah, the Dabo girls, as somebody who I like, I've also worked in the service industry a lot. Um, the thing that doesn't strike me of the sex works with them, and it could be just that they couldn't come out and say it, is that like they seem more like, you know, Earl's girls. Or like if you ever go to right. like those restaurants or an upscale place where it's like they're not 
selling sexual services. The hollow suites are selling sexual services. And I'm not saying that like the Dabo girls aren't selling sexual services, but there isn't that like, you know, the Orion slave girls of it all. Like there isn't that overt sexuality to those interactions. They, they much more remind me of like, uh, like an ultra lounge that only hires super hot servers or um, a high end casino where all the card dealers are. And and not to say that, you know, people in those situations might not be engaging um, more in sex work or erotic labor, like they probably are or probably have, or they might not have, you know, you never know. Um, yeah, I don't, but I see it. I see your perspective on it. Um, yeah. And, and I think it just kind of, again, comes from that idea of like it leading on like the Western tropes and the ways mm-hmm. in which like, even in this episode, when it starts, when we find out that business has been, been slow at Quark's because of the Bajoran gratitude festival, where, you know, everyone abstains from worldly pleasures for a month or however long that is. Um, the idea of there's the, the bit, the joke about, you know, Rom having, which leads to, you know, the whole war Rom doesn't get sick time. And, you know, the idea yeah. of like changing the, the material working conditions um, at Quark's, the idea that he has an ear infection because he's had too much Ulox, which again, we know it's the allusion to um, the Ferengi ears being an erogenous zone and, and Ulox being akin to, um, well, I guess if it's yourself, it's 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 masturbation or, you know, Quark looking for a handy from um, Regis Philbin on Live with Regis and Kathy um, back in the day. Wait, what? Which if you haven't seen that clip, you should. What's that? I never heard of that. I Yeah, I'm sorry. I Did I have a stroke? What just happened? <laughs> yeah. So, like, well, again, so you know how like, Quark's always like propositioning people for Umox rubbers because they're, they're yes. under the zone. And at least we talked about this in the the Green Little Men episode yes. earlier this year when they go back in time to Roswell. So there's a clip. You can find it on YouTube. Armin is on live with Regis and Kathy Lee in full makeup, in character as Quark, I think right around when Deep Space Nine premiered, and he gets Regis to rub his ears and basically <laughs> give them umox again it's there there might not now that i think about it there might not be fully informed consent there in terms of regis knowing what all the star trek nerds know when when we watch the episode but yeah there's a video of court getting his ears rubbed oh my god by the you know that i'm going to watch that um, the second we're done talking like i need to oh that. absolutely i'm queuing it up on my phone right now as we speak um <laughs> again i don't i and from my perspective um and my my humble perspective obviously um <laughs> him asking lita for umox is like yes. oh you want to give me a hand with that um i think i spot that as more of a cultural thing of like frangies are just horny little fucks <laughs> like and i like the there's an episode where um Quark goes to hire this dabo girl yeah. um and he's like, you got to give me Umox in my contract. I don't see that as like, you got to do it because you're a sex worker. I see it as like, I'm like, I love Quark. I am a big Quark fan. Quark is a really bad guy. Like he is yeah. not a good person. He does a lot of, I mean, besides like selling weapons and war yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. Like he, he's very exploited. He does a lot of, of situation, like political situations around him. Yes. And I, and I, and culturally, Ferengis have no respect for women. And I think seeing it within that lens of like Quark is this reflection of society. Like, 
talking about Ricky the Dick, Quark could be an avatar for him. Um, and some of the stories that have been said about him um, sexually harassing his employees of Star Trek. Right. Um, that like, I don't, I don't see those propositions that, you know, raw masking Lita for Umox or, or Quark doing what he does or all these interactions, you know, brunt and, you know, everything. I see that as a reflection of like, Ferengis are the worst part of a, you know, white supremacist, capitalist, misogynistic society that we currently live in. And we're living in at the time the show was made. I think the show uses Quark as this parody avatar of our society. And that also reflects on why we laugh at him. Why Ferengi episodes are comedy is that if we like Mm -hmm. sit down and look at Quark's behavior, like I've worked in the service industry a long time. I've had bosses who are shitty like that. I've had coworkers who are, you know, don't think it's wrong to ask if you want to fuck them in the walk-in freezer upon meeting them. Like, um, and as a sex worker, it's interesting as a particularly like stripper, I'm a, a club of erotic labor for the most part. Um, that doesn't happen as much. Like it does like obviously, but like, because strip clubs and brothels are codified in what they are, I am much more easily, like I can more easily navigate, um, boundary pushing and, and, Right, sexualized violence, uh, whether it be physical or emotional, directed at me because I have a backing and an ins- like I have like boundaries around that, and so it doesn't actually happen as much. Like that's very interesting. It does. I'm not saying that yeah. it doesn't, but like I've I've been put in more. Um, and again, this is just my lived experience. I would say my time as a server. I was probably more sexually harassed and sexually exploited than in my time as a um, erotic laborer in strip clubs. Um, and that's, and again, that's just my, my lived experience. I know that's not a universal experience at all, but like, right. so when I see Quark doing that and when I see Rom doing that, I don't, I don't see the dimensionality of the sex worker there. I see that it's like, I see it more as a scathing this- indictment of the service yeah. industry and the hospitality right. industry, which if we want to talk about like, labor exploitation like i have seen the worst labor exploitation in my life happening in service and hospitality industry more so than the the sex work industry i would agree with that from like that compared to working in offices and stuff like that like a hundred percent yeah like and and again that's just like my my lived experience like i definitely know um and I I also draw a big line between like um, trafficking and sex work. Obviously, yeah. I'm not talking about trafficked individuals. I'm talking about like consenting sex work or mm-hmm. even survival sex work because you know what? Every job is survival if you live in a capitalist society. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. most people wouldn't don't dream of driving to their office or working in a restaurant or store. Same, you know, yeah. with sex workers. So. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So then Holly and, and again, and we're all we can only, you know, speak from our, our own perspectives and kind of like you know, acknowledge that and everything else. In terms of this the workers responding to um Quark's exploitation and you know, the time and thing and organizing ultimately, um, and some of the struggles within that, we see Lita basically, you know, being kind of the 
the junior or the vice president of the mm-hmm. of the union and kind of taking that that co leadership role with Rom and then ac- across the the different roles within the staff, you see that that solidarity across that. In your experience, have you seen it be more hierarchical and kind of you know staff responses to improper management or like is that how what's like what's the in your your experience been the like hierarchy amongst staff or has there been one one even i mean in the service industry like particularly in restaurants there there has been and and i have witnessed division between sort of front of house and back of house so like service staff versus kitchen staff um which i also feel talking about labor rights um i feel like is often uh manufactured by management to keep the two sides Mm -hmm. divided um you know kitchen staff think servers don't do anything servers think kitchen staff is late like it's fucking it up like i've seen it all um i've you know managed restaurants in my life um oh i'm so sorry (laughs) repeat your question i just went no, the idea of like what I think the episode does a good job of kind of at the margins is the idea of, you know, breaking down what I would think would be a natural inherent hierarchy in the different positions mm-hmm. of the, the staff. And again, there's replicators, so you don't see the like back of house um, staff yeah. necessarily in the same way. It's all would be front of house, house people. But again, I was just wondering kind of, you know, you based on your experiences, if you've like seen that hierarchy and like, I totally agree that that is manufactured and intensified by management by capitalism to keep the work workers kind of exploited and pitted against each other right like i think you see that even more broadly cross industries right among like there's i mean again i'm not i don't use twitter regularly anymore but you know every every so often on left twitter you'd you'd, you'd get in they'd get into like arguments about who is a worker and who isn't and it's like yes there are varying levels and different types of ways in that you know we put our our bodies online and like sell our labor like there are distinct things and like you know levels of degrees but the idea of like you know arguing about who's in or who isn't just benefits you know, yeah, it benefits who owns the means of production. Doesn't benefit yeah, us. Absolutely. It's it's that Howard's in, you know, it's it's you know, they divide us to conquer us. Yeah, no, absolutely like um the the non hierarchical way I think probably was just a time constraint. Like they couldn't yeah. get into that. Um I would say if we're talking like if it's fully just the front stuff, I would see them um pulling together like i've definitely in terms of sex work in terms of club work particularly like working in strip clubs i've worked in strip clubs where um you know i've heard of entire staffs of strip clubs walking out on management because management was um being unfair or unjust um an interesting thing about sex work and stripping is you're for the most part you're a freelancer i am a private contractor so I set my hours, like obviously a negotiation with my bosses. I go, Hey, I can work these hours. Sometimes they'll be like, Hey, can you come in on these days? Or, um, you know, we, we have too many people. Um, but for the most part, erotic laborers are freelancers with the pros and cons that come with that. So, um, it, it, it lands on sort of the culture of the individual place. Like I said, I've, I've heard of strip club staffs, you know, really banding together. And I've worked at places where it's like, we're all here together. And like, 
it's us versus the management and the customers sometimes. But I've also worked in places where everybody's out for their own damn thing, which I would think would be more... I could see that being more of an issue if they were to dig into it. If the Dabo girls, if we want to code them as sex workers, which I mean, we absolutely could code them as erotic laborers for sure, because they are, you know, there as sort of erotic entertainment in a way, um, sort of, if I was going to put them in the sex worker, um, milieu into that, into that little box, um, I would put them more towards like a stripper, um, where you're just sort of more entertainment, or, um, you know, like sugar babying or something like that, which again mm, yeah. gets into stuff. But like, I mean, lots of sugar babies still do full service. But yeah, I would say they were more erotic laborer than and sex worker. But then I'm ra- both rambling and cutting some very like um, discourse, uh, linguistical hairs um, in the difference of those. So, yeah, I could see it be more that like in the human world I've inhabited most of most strippers are freelancers. Um, I know there is one unionized club in California that just unionized. Um, and there have been erotic labor movements in the past, which I'm definitely excited to talk to you all about if we want to talk about it. Um, but nowadays I think it would just be like, if you don't like where you're working, you just go work somewhere else. If you don't like your boss, you just go there. And some people will always be willing to turn a blind eye to exploitation if they're getting their bag, um, which I think could be set across, you know, all industries. Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. Sorry, that was a little rambly. I don't think it was. You, I, you were very. It was not. No. I had very... a I had a ADHD attack, a la Gandhi and Clone High. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is R.I.P. King. I was I was so excited that you said yes to to coming on. I've been nervously excited and giddy between like you know terrified but like you know in a good way anxiety we manage it i mean sam <laughs> don't worry <laughs> all of us but yeah lita lita in this episode like i love lita as a character i think she's so fucking great yeah um i love the actress i love the character um i do when i think of her character and i think of like marta as a character as well sort of the two main dabo girls we do get to meet they're the sex work coding of them kind of being bimbos definitely holds true. Yeah. Um, and also the stigmatized coding of sex workers, especially with like Marta is like, oh, she's actually not bad because she wants to get an education and not do this anymore. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. you know, the classic thing of, you know, sex workers don't actually want to do this. They want to, they're just using it to get out of whatever circumstances they're in. And, um, Particularly like the Bajoran Dabo girls, knowing that they're coming out of this sort of post-genocide war um, situation. And I think I think definitely under Dukat's rule, when we see the station, when Dukat's in control, I think in that case, I would say that like the Dabo girls probably are um, doing more coerced sex work or, or even being sexually exploited and trafficked in many ways. They're, they're, they're rounded up from the labor camp and and taken to the station. Like, yeah, that's literally trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. They're literally being trafficked, but yeah, I think, I think Lita definitely reminds me of a lot of strippers I know and reminds me of a lot of sex workers I know. Um, I think she's, I think she's just a really well-written character too of like, Yeah. 
I like her. Sorry. <laughs> like no, literally nothing to apologize for. Um, I'll give you a a, a break to catch your breath, catch your breath, yeah, and, and yeah. take a drink. Um, because I'm just like soaking up, every, hanging on every word you're saying. Um, Elise, I wanted to ask you about. The forced resolution. Um, obviously, the FCA comes in. They try to, you know, break the strike. And I mean, we can talk about that a little bit more. That I felt very, like, reminiscent of the time where Miles was talking about with um, his ancestor being the, the murdered union organizer in West Virginia during the Pennsylvania coal strikes in 1902. It also reminded me a bit of the Frank Little Little murder that happened. Oh, I can't remember the years, but it was uh, during the copper mines in Anaconda, um, Montana. There's a really good podcast. The first season of Death in the West is about that, and I think that's really good. It was also the I have this idea of I want to do it at one day, but uh, doing like a labor history podcast of the Crows' past here in Alberta. I think that would be super interesting because, you know, the whole Blairmore was had a communist town council thing is super cool. We had the 1919 Winnipeg general strike. So that idea then of the FCA coming in and being, you know, the corporations that either hire, hire vigilantes or, you know, basically murder the traveling um, organizers themselves to try and, and break the strike. Um, Cisco in some ways forces, not in some ways, in some ways he tries to end the strike largely because of the aforementioned fight between his officers. And he basically pulls some kind of shady landlord shit to send Quark back to the negotiating table with Rom. Yeah, and he's, he's, Elise, I wanted to, he's I was curious like, as to what your thoughts were about that. It, it, it kind of reminded me of Benny and in, in Rent. Like, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um rent my amigos is due or i will have to evict you um but yeah so fucking benny i know seriously fuck that guy um i'm still laughed that his dog was murdered basically um anyway that was i mean this is now a rent podcast (laughs) also like dogs being murdered is not funny like that was it's not funny but the song she sings about it is a fucking bop yes here's here's my sorry at least interrupt you here's my rent diet or my rent tangent so on saturday night a bunch of us went to rocky horror at the the metro for the the midnight screening and we were we were getting ready together and we're playing a a rocky horror kind of playlist on i don't know if it's spotify or whatever and then went through the went through the album and then it started playing a live music and lovey bohem came on and i was you know having a good time i was feeling it yes i was getting my makeup done i was wearing my fishnets and i was singing along and the people they're like you know all the words to this and i'm like (laughs) You don't? But also, like, do so. they not know you? Like, I'm so confused. Like, this was a room of people that don't know you. Of course you know that. I'm I'm sorry you have so many straight friends. Um yes. Sorry. No. Rent tangents. Yes. No, oh sorry, Lisa, I interrupted. You <laughs> it's with that. totally fine. I was um it's nice to know that I know you better than some people. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. But yeah, so... No, you're not. That's true, also. So yeah, so Cisco's <laughs> basically like, if you don't end this, I'm going to charge you four seasons of back rent and charge you for all of the repairs we've done on your hollow suite, which is like obviously something that Core cannot afford at all. Like, he has no choice. 
really. Yeah. Um, I had some thoughts on that as well of, um, of Cisco and, and Brunt and the FCA um, in terms of like labor organizing. Um, I thought of Brunt and the Nausicans, uh when they show up, the first thing that popped in my head was like the Pinkertons mm. yes. and like the history of Pinkertons and their involvement in crushing the strike movement, including their involvement in the 1902 coal, Pennsylvania coal miners by where Miles O'Brien, you know, name checks his ancestor in it. Um, they, a large part of that strike was brought down by the Pinkertons. And when I think of the Nausicans, I think Nausicans would make great Pinkertons. Mm-hmm. Um, That's really interesting. As, as strike disruptors. And so I saw it as like, almost like Quark is like a minor robber baron and Brunt and the FCA are like these sort of larger robber barons who come in with the Pinkertons to put down strikes so that the strikes don't spread, which was very, very common, especially in the coal miner strikes, both in the United States and in Alberta. Um, you know, it happened in Drumheller, it happened in the Crow's Nest, it happens all over. Um, and I saw Cisco as more of like the big union stepping in, right. you know? Like, I can see that. I saw Cisco uh stepping in as kind of like as you know doing his landlord shit but like also doing that like if he was um what's the name of the i have it pause cut out my pause i have it written down what it's uh called the umwa so i saw cisco as sort of representing the unwa who is also involved in that pennsylvania coal miner strike that miles Mm -hmm. references um which for me, I I was led to think that because they did reference that particular mine strike for Miles, yeah. so the UMWA coming in as like a larger power to manipulate. So it 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 felt like this this allegory to all these sort of smaller strikes that become these larger fighting grounds for these sort of two big power blocks of robber barons versus large union organizers. So I saw it as kind of a classic small town mind strike of Quark versus Rom. Yeah. That's that's kind of that was kind of the read I was taking from it. Yeah, I just no, couldn't I like tell. I, I like that, that too. I just couldn't tell if for my like when I was watching it, I couldn't tell if Cisco wanted it to be done because he wanted the right thing done, or if he wanted it done because he wanted like the festival to go off without a hitch and just like not have disrupt something disrupt the station. Like I couldn't tell. But I think that was I, just because of the way Avery was acting, maybe. I mean, Avery, Avery Brooks is going to Avery Brooks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> love him. King king of acting. But I I don't know. Maybe I took it because I have I have watched DS9 so much that it's like Cisco's character is so morally upright, except for that one episode. <laughs> um, one or two episodes in there. Um, another name checked under the pale moonlight. But like he is so moralistic and he is for the rights of people, for the rights of workers. So and he, he does sort of like if you want to think of Starfleet as this like perfect socialist utopia, they they are essentially a socialist utopia. They are essentially one big union of workers altogether building this better universe i mean you could get into the sort of the paramilitary colonistic ref like side of starfleet as well but like in this case 
it does feel right for who Cisco is as a character and also what Starfleet is as a thing. And I, I mean, there's definitely like, I think he was pissed that his officers were fighting and he just wants right. it over because there is also that streak of Cisco that's like, don't bother me. I'm playing with my profit trains. Um, <laughs> you know, but like, like, don't make me turn the space station around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's yeah, very, that's... he's very like frazzled Daddy dad vibes. Yeah. yeah, Daddy yeah. Cisco. Right. I think I'm also, I feel like, in, sorry, this is like, I think in the last six months also, I'm just like becoming very cynical. And yes. So I'm like, I mean, so I'm like, oh, maybe he just doesn't care and wants it over. But like, maybe I brought that into it, not Cisco. I mean, hope in this economy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I see both sides. I definitely see that perspective of him just sort of cynically, because he does blackmail Quark, um, in so many other episodes. But also. I think, I mean, I'm going to, this just hit my brain, so it might be a wild tangent, but I feel like there might be, like, a pseudo-sexual dom-sub, um, like, fin-dom relationship between Quark and Cisco. Hmm. I think Cisco is fin-doming Quark. Um, wow. If we want to tie it back to sex work, like, I, like, I think Quark likes it when oh, Cisco yeah. manipulates him. Um, and not to bring up, I don't know if y'all watch Lower Decks and I don't want to yeah. spoil a recent well, episode. my username like, on socials is Chicken Tendy. Yeah. <laughs> Love It's Chicken yeah. Tendy. So I miss, yeah. so I don't know if you guys are caught up to I, last I week's episode. Up. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. so it does, it does also, it. yeah. Yeah. It had, it had Rom and Lita. It had Grand yeah. Mavis, Rom and Lita, and they were playing tricks and, and, oh, you know, I won't okay. spoil it for people who might not have listened, yeah. but like these sort of. The idea that Quark is into it when Cisco financial when Cisco plays capitalism, and in the times that Cisco plays capitalist with Quark to manipulate Quark to doing what he wants or what is right, Quark gets off on that. Um, and I think that's also something about Ferengi culture. Like Ferengis are into that. Ferengis are all just little. Sissy Findoms and uh, hit me up, Frankies out there. I will, I will <laughs> empty your wallet, you, you little lobeless pay pigs. Oh my god, I love it. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> me too. I really just not to get away from the unions too much, but like just Rom and Quark, just as brothers. <laughs> like I love Rom telling off Quark in in this episode. Um, this made me feel because we're I'm we're always talking about how Rom, we love Rom and like in the first few seasons you know he's very they portray him as very weak minded he doesn't stick up for himself etc and I'm like that's not the Rom that I know and love so I feel like this is like the real beginning of the Rom that I know and love yeah and, to quote Rom himself yeah he's, he's not he's not stupid he just lacked confidence yes exactly and i do think which is also mood <laughs> yeah, yeah oh sure. absolutely i was reading uh, what's the I... opposite of that i'm the opposite <laughs> <laughs> i think that's called sorry go ahead i was gonna say i think that's called a white man um <laughs> i mean no actually i don't really also, i don't really believe in like my... absolutes like that i'm just it was just in too yeah. easy of a joke <laughs> oh it's definitely a joke but also i was gonna make the joke that um 
that really helped my gender dysphoria. That was gender euphoria being seen as a man there. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, so thank you. You're welcome. That's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> um, one to of sometimes things- be seen as a man. <laughs> I love that for you. Um, I was reading, and so Max Grodencheck, who plays Rom, said that he was very... Um, or Armin Shimmer- Shimmerman, rather, said that Max was very worried about Rom going to leave his job at Quark's at the end of this episode. Um, and so this is what, what Armin had to say. Max was devastated because he felt it was the death. Is that? I can never pronounce this word. Is it? Keel. Okay. Now? Death knell. Death knell. Okay. Max was. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Max was devastated because he felt it was the death knell for Rom. I told him that the, the best thing that can happen to a character is change, and Rom was changing for the better. In the end, Grodenchik appreciated that he was able to change jobs and do this. Uh, Rom does this big thing, forming a union, and then he just realizes he has to leave his job. He has to end his working relationship with his brother to retain his family relationship with him. He doesn't want to jeopardize the love between them. Rom's a better man than I am. So I think like that was that bit was Max talking about it. And I just love the idea that Rom cares so much about his brother that he's like, you know what, we need to be family only. And I think that that is was probably a really hard choice for him to make. But I'm proud of him. Yeah, Rom... Rom quickly, like, Rom becomes one of my favorite characters in the series. Um, and also throughout, I mean, across the Trek universe. And I, when I rewatch it, I always forget how underwritten the character is. Right. Um, in those first few seasons leading up to this episode. And yeah, it just, everything goes so well with him after that. I mean, he gets the girl, he gets the job, he gets to watch baseball. It, it all goes great. Yeah, I think his son really inspired him a lot too, going off and joining Starfleet yeah. and doing like following his dream. I think he really learned a lot from Nog. Yeah, we see this sort of um, utopian thinking of Starfleet in that also like if you just give people the resources to live the lives they want to live, they will make better choices, which is also really beautiful. And you see that it's almost like a queering. It's almost like a coming out story too of like, um, with Nog going off to Starfleet, it's, you know, once you see one person living their truth, um, despite what their society, culture, and family say about them, it makes it so much easier for the people around them and people after them to also live their truth, which I think we see in Rom and eventually we see in Quark, you know? Totally. And I think, too, like with, with Rom kind of like specifically like kind of to, to tie it like, you know, nice, nice both at the episode is it's like people are able to do that when their material conditions are met right Mm -hmm. like when you are like we're all trying to survive under capitalism but when the situation is even more dire it's like how can you self-actualize if you're just literally literally trying to survive right and so being able to organize the union improve those those conditions for everyone allows you know rom to kind of take take those other steps right because he's he's not living latinum check latinum brick to latinum brick or strip or whatever right slip to slip slip to slip <laughs> man i know about living slip to slip we're all just out here yeah. um stacking up worthless gold 
Um, yeah, I think it, I think that does. And I think that also ties into this union thing of like unions, you know, they just want people's material conditions to be livable. And when you see stuff like the writer's strike that just happened and the SAG strike that's currently happening still. Yeah. Yeah. As of, as of this recording, SAG is still on strike. The writers have just gone back. Um, and when you actually like look into what the writers and actors are asking for, it is the bare minimum of things. And, and you see the studios who literally don't want to like a studio exec who doesn't want to give up a hundred million dollars a year of his own paycheck. Like, right. Um, one, one, a handful of people being like, no, no, we need to continue to exponentially make more than we could ever spend in a hundred lifetimes. Um, and you don't get to have healthcare. Yeah. Like, and I think that, I think that speaks of this in this episode with Quark, you know, the austerity, and you see that with it. I mean, it does feel really relevant with those strikes that are going on right now or just ended. Um, the claim of austerity, people like Netflix claiming austerity, you know, or or Amazon trying to claim austerity or, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, like the clawing back um, of people's wages in times of quote unquote recession or austerity that you know, they don't ever get returned unless people strike and less people stand up. And I think this episode really um, sees what's happening at their current time, because I think a strike does happen for actors and writers around not too far off around the DS9 um, era actually happening. Um, right. But also foretells modern society. Like, I think DS9, uh, one of the ring- things I love about it as a series so much is it is this um crystal ball to the future like the writers really see what is happening in current american and global society of 1995 and 96 and see where it has landed us here 30 years later um, yeah there, there are times like 20 get, years I later yeah there are times i get frustrated but kind of like the 90s-ness of it all and like mm-hmm. want the show to go even further um but again, it's this is this one of the things that I kind of generally like about film and just like art in general is the art stays static and we all move and change and 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 grow around it. Like my thing about film specifically is it's kind of like time travel because it's either enforcing or responding to the culture that made it that produced it, the norms, mores, et cetera, et cetera. And that was kind of the the genesis to the um, film series that my friend and I co-curated two seasons ago at the the Metro the Metro about women after after World War II. One of them being Norma Ray, which if you haven't seen it, is also a, a really good pro-union movie that had the best response. Um it's a great movie. Of the, of the films that we did. And like it would be easy to be cynical and say that this movie is too didactic, but like seeing people's response to that and it just it it was pretty powerful. And I think to a lesser extent, this episode's trying to do that. I don't think it does as well as Norma Ray, but also it's episodic television, not a film. And it, it doesn't have Sally Field who's in like every scene, but one. And when Sally Field's not on screen, you're like, where's Sally Field? <laughs> um, um, yeah. And that also ties to like something I noticed um, getting into a bit of the like behind the scenes, not just like what's on the screen, but how it's being presented as LeVar Burton as the director 
um, watching this episode as somebody who's watched a lot of film and watched a lot of uh, films about labor rights, um, I definitely saw when I was watching it, the way LeVar Burton shot it reminded me of movies like The Killing Floor um, and other like these other like The Killing Floor and uh, what is it? Coal Miner's Daughter and these great strike movies like there's a part where Rom is like setting up the union and it's the way he shot where he's like centered and lit and the people are around him and there's like this swell of inspiring music like it reminded me of like it felt like I was watching something like Norma Ray or The Killing Floor or those movies um which I think just ties into the fact that like LeVar Burton is a really really smart director um because so many of the shots looked like shots from those types of movies, which is also very interesting to me that it's like, I feel like the production was very aware that they were making kind of like um, a low budget serialized version of these great yeah. works of, of solidarity, like these movies about solidarity and, and um, unions. It also kind of reminded me a bit of those like, Movies like Michael Collins, um, who I'm also probably is also one of O'Brien's ancestors. Um, but these sort of great hero, you know, the hero stands up against the big bad society to point out how wrong it is and usually gets martyred or sacrificed. Which Rom thankfully does not get martyred or sacrificed. But there's a rebirth of sorts and we love to see it. Yes. Definitely Old Rom dies. Like the bartender rom has to die in this episode he does martyr himself his leaving the industry is kind of like a martyring as well ah goosebumps yeah i love it i love it, I love it. just kind of looking i know we've been been going for a bit so before i kind of move into like our two regular kind of closing mm-hmm. segments and then do the the outros was there anything elise or holly that we didn't talk about specifically in the episode that you wanted to call out um I just wanted to say that I am, as a Worf lover, <laughs> I am continuing <laughs> to enjoy watching Worf and Dax um, open up to each other. Um, as I've said before, she's the only person that he really talks to um, about life stuff. And he she got him a little housewarming gift, and I thought that was sweet. Um, I did feel that that B plot of Worf moving to the Defiant was pretty much nothing, and there's not really much to say about it in general. Um, and the C plot of O'Brien having that big cyst on his neck. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, that plot was more interesting, just, even though I forgot it, it happened. There was also, is I think in the episode there was a thing about like they were going to go do some El- ancient like Celtic battle that also yes. was O'Brien. Yes. Um. O'Brien's ancestor and I I do I want to note that like Miles O'Brien um obviously the greatest character in Star Trek history um just absolutely king shit calm meanie absolutely king shit and everything he does I fucking love him um loved him in Con Air (laughs) um I've not throw seen him but um, somehow. But he's great in the he's, he's great in everything else I've seen him in. He's really great in Hell on Wheels. I started watching that and he was in that and he's really good. But um Sorry, I do Captain Pike himself, Anson Mount. Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, I know from the Britney the Britney Spears movie Crossroads. 
That's oh, I've never I seen know. that. Oh, um, Anson Mount plays the love interest in that film. Well, I know what I'm doing after this podcast. I'm watching uh, Regis film in, give some yes. unlocks, and then I'm watching. Um, yes. um, I do. I do love O'Brien's subtle character build of like the bullshitting Irish as somebody who is a bullshitting Irish um, that like we're all, we're all the Irish were given a gift of gab and a gift of fantabulizing. And I think O'Brien does it in such a great way. And I think the B plot kind of shows what a great character O'Brien is where, you know, Worf comes back and um, also some, some great lines in this episode of him. It was like biggest funeral in the whole Valley, you know, um, uh, delivery is great, great. He's a great actor. I did also want to like go back to the whole like a cab thing and the wild West thing of like Odo versus Worf. We have that great scene of them uh, in the B plot, which is maybe one of the better parts of the B plot when they're, you know, Worf's like, this didn't happen on the Enterprise. And Odo's just like, oh, actually, bitch. Um, let's, yeah. let's talk about some of your greatest, <laughs> greatest embarrassment hits here. Yes. Um, but like the two kind of different types of cops they are. Whereas Worf is just that like busting head, overzealot cop. Um, and Odo is that like he's that old West sheriff where it's like his morals are kind of more ambiguous and it's kind of less about keeping the law and more about keeping himself unbothered, you know? Um, Which I thought was really well illustrated. I think there was some really good character development for pretty much everybody who is in this episode, except for Bashir, because he just continues to be a prissy rich boy playing classic, classic colonizer, (laughs) Alexander Siddig. Well, and like even even like you know when he mentions unions to Rom, and then finds out that Rom actually does practice and like applies theory, Bashir's like, "Well, I I was only like talking in theory. I wasn't actually saying to do this." And like that's such like a white ivory tower. I'm going to pick up a Marxist lens and argue this in university for a bit. But you know, act, this actually affects real people. No, no, let's just talk about it, right? So, yeah, totally. Tracks. I definitely I definitely love that, and I I love Bashir. It's just this like. Just the guy in one of your social classes you want to slap so bad. <laughs> and then I, I, I would fuck Bashir. I mean, Garrick would have to be there too, but like, <laughs> we, would, we would make it happen. Mm. Yep. Utrecht, bring back Garrick and Bashir. Oh, yes. And I want to see their love and Esri. I want to see them as a great thruple yes, in the future. I 100% am on board with them being a thruple. This is something I have said. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I have said it in my life. Agree. Oh, I say it in my life all the time. Way more than <laughs> ever warrants it. People, people are getting concerned. I think that you should say it every day, honestly. Yeah. I've been, I've been emailing strange new worlds and lower decks um, <laughs> the whole reason i want that i want a seven show is so that they can go to cardassia and we can have a garrick bashir esri thruple reveal mm. yeah. Work. yeah that's it all right well we've been we've been talking for a bit and this has been really good what i will now lead us into is one of our final two closing segments holly this is something that elise and i do every episode and this first segment that we're getting into was when i 
I was saying when I propositioned, when I proposed <laughs> the po- idea of doing this podcast to Elise was one of their stipulations that we have a thirst segment because Elise wanted to talk about who she wanted to bone on Deep Space yeah. Nine every week because we are bisexual disasters. So now it's time for the Altair Water Thirst Quencher. Altair Water first being mentioned in Star Trek 3 by Dr. McCoy. And as Elise recently reminded us, could also be a reference to Alta from Altair 4 on Forbidden Planet. So, Elise, who are you thirsting for this week? Um, Lita is hot as fuck and organizing and giving. I mean, this is not this part's not about her, but like, I do think she gave Rom like so much confidence in this episode. Um, and it was just like very hot. And I think they have excellent chemistry. And I'm also going to say something that is a spoiler. So if you care about those things, maybe fast forward a few minutes. This is the episode not a few minutes. I'm not talking about it for that long. Um, this is the episode where they were like, these two people have chemistry. Like maybe they should start dating next season or whenever that happens. And I think that that was a very good call. But also Rom admitted to masturbating in this episode. And that is the first time that ever happened on Star Trek. So that's um, very wonderful. Holly, just to put you on the spot. No, no, uh, no obligation to participate, but uh I mean, Were you thirsting for anything in this episode? I mean, I'm always thirsting. I, <laughs> I, I'm perpetually dehydrated because um, I am also a bisexual disaster. Um, I mean, Lita always, Lita's a big girl crush. I think O'Brien, oh, always oh, thirsting yeah. for O'Brien. Yeah. Um, yep. I think in this episode, he's giving big, like, daddy organizer union vibes. Um yeah, I would say I would say Miles or Lita. I mean, or Bashir or Quark or Cisco or <laughs> That's the thing about this cast, eh? Five um, to kind ten of the strange new worlds cast that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of uh extras that are really I really I want to shout out. Um I will say the more I think about it, I came in kind of being like, Oh, the Dabble girls aren't coded as sex workers, but the more I think about it, um there's a scene where they're all in the the bar after they shut it down and all the dabble girls are in their like off duty outfits, which are just, you know, loose, like spandexy, you know, off duty workout gear, which is often what a lot of us strippers wear when we're off duty is just like comfortable pants and a sensible top. Um, that felt very uh, sex worker coded that it's like, oh, yeah, you guys are just in your little like spandexy pants here. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's there's three double girl extras that are very very attractive in this episode as well that I clocked. So awesome. it all. I'm thirsty for it all. <laughs> what about you, Matt? And then the other segment that we like to touch oh. base on every week is most Star Trek thing. And my mm-hmm. candidate for most Star Trek thing is there's the scene with Rom at the desk and he's surrounded by pads because. It's the 90s. We don't have tablets or iPads yet. So it's like, okay, we have digital books. So if you're, you want to look busy, it's like having a desk covered of papers. Whereas now it's like all your tablets can have all the documents and maybe you have a couple so or a mo- couple monitors so you don't have to slide between them all the time. But, uh, you know, extra pads is, is, a, is a Star Trek staple, kind of like returning from a conference on a shuttlecraft. <laughs> <laughs> the most dangerous mission um it's the one we've ever seen yeah it's it's also conferences conferences take out so many people they really um yeah i agree if they ever get to the conference anyway yeah (laughs) 
Um, I agree. The pads, the pads on the desk are so Star Trek. Like, yeah. Yeah. I like that it's a mix of, he had a mix of Ferengi and Federation pads. Yeah. Which yeah. kind of, um, I mean, most Star Trek thing of all is that uh, socialist values and cooperation will fix every problem that you could possibly have. Just start a union. It's super easy and all your problems will be fixed. Just just read I some like, marks. <laughs> I like to uh, twist the needle a bit talking to some, some Star Trek fans where, where I... And again, the Bell Riots come up and I, I think they're a, a decent example, but um, the Star Trek utopia tends... And this is where I think maybe it's a product of the time and kind of, you know, the neoliberal zeitgeist or whatever. Um, there's not a lot of class struggle that gets us the socialist utopia. Like, it just seems to happen without the work of you know organizing and and struggle but this episode is another feather in its cap of it actually exists and it can work it's just that easy read marks like holly said yeah actually i had something that was not about this section but something i forgot to say earlier oh, um, please, go ahead. the two actors that played the nausicans were actually like professional darts players because they were playing hell yeah brother bar, and i thought that that was awesome that's all I meant to say it earlier. Um, truly that. Pinkertons. Yeah. <laughs> Old timey goons. I love a Nausicaan goon. Nausicaan goons. That's a very Star Trek thing. That sounds like it'd be like a good it, band it, name. Yeah, it really is. The Nausicaan yeah. goons. The Nausicaan goons. I'm going to start a Star Trek hardcore band called Nausicaan goons. You should. And our first album is going to be called Dom Jot Human. <laughs> oh my god i'm already your number heart. one fan just so you know awesome i'm into it <laughs> well holly thank you so 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 much for for coming i thoroughly enjoyed this and i hope it's not too presumptuous to say i hope you have too and we'd love to have you back at any time this has been awesome so thank you oh yeah absolutely great. thank you both i had such a blast you guys hit an intersection of all of my favorite things which is like uh talking about uh you know socialist discourse star trek and and sex work you've done it you done nailed it you guys are great awesome well holly if people want to find more of you on the internet where can they do so uh you can find me uh on all my socials is holly von sin sin has two ends in it um, so Facebook, Insta, uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, and Letterbox. If you want to see my hilarious reviews of movies that I often write while um, really digesting the material. Mm, <laughs> um, yes, yes. And then, yeah, uh, and I just encourage people to uh, support live theater and live stuff and... Um, encouraging people to uh, examine maybe some sex worker biases and supporting sex workers. If you are in the Edmonton area, there is an organization called Answers, which does amazing work. It's sex worker led. They're doing amazing work, um, both on destigmatizing sex work, education, and direct support to the sex worker community. Uh, Vancouver's has um, Red Swan. No, not Red Swan. Oh, Oh, I'm embarrassed. Uh, I can't remember the name of Vancouver's organization, but in Toronto, there's Maggie's, there's Stella in Montreal. Um, I really encourage the the listeners out there, if you haven't, uh, to go 
engage in some of that work because that is also labor solidarity is supporting and destigmatizing sex work and erotic labor. When we did that movie series, one of the movies we did was Clute, and we really wanted answers on the the panel for that, but the timing didn't work out. I, was I love Clute. Oh my Great. god, so one of my favorite movies. Let's I, yeah. After oh. Matt um ha- hosted that um the the screening of it, which obviously I couldn't go to because I live in New Jersey, but um I watched the movie and it was just wonderful. Elise, where can folks find more of you on the internet? You can find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at chicken double underscore tendy. That's T-E-N-D-I. And on Blue Sky at chicken tendy. You can find my other podcast, Fang Bangers Pod, on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Fang Bangers Pod. That's bangers with a Z. As well as anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yeah, you can catch me theoretically on the website formerly known as Twitter and Letterboxd and blue sky at, at Maddie Hugh, m-a-t-t-y-h-u-g-h you can catch elise and i together on the on twitter x instagram blue sky at pod race you can also email us at podrace at gmail.com please remember to rate and review us on the podcatching system of your choice thank you again to our editor melissa and dj empirical for our interstellar theme song and until next time computer and program bye, bye.